What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. On today's episode, we recap games 1 and 2 against the Brooklyn Nets, and we also get into Embiid's knee injury, Monty Williams and the Lakers' head coaching vacancy, the question at the backup center position, and more. Welcome back to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. It's your co-host, Jack Duffy. What's going on, guys? Hey, I'm Chris Klein, one of your co-site experts, and I'm also here with my fellow co-site expert, Lucas Johnson. Lucas, how are you? I'm doing good, guys. Good to finally get on this. Glad to be here. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good. Big win, 145-123 over the Nets. Much needed. Yeah, it was really exciting. Really big, important win. So what are you guys' first observations coming off the win? Just your first initial thoughts. I think the biggest thing was just, oh. the, was just the disparity between the two halves. You know, the first half was kind of sloppy. I just saw a tweet not too long ago from one of the beat writers saying that halftime was the angriest Brett Brown has been, you know, in his time with the team. And I think that really speaks to how much the Sixers needed this win and how much Brett might need it himself, you know. It was the Sixers were playing a whole lot better this game, I think, than they did last game, but it was still just a one point game at halftime, a lot of defensive lapses. You saw Brooklyn beat Philly to a few loose balls still. You know, after last game I think that was a big issue. And you saw the Sixers kinda of ratchet up the intensity and the effort in the second half and obviously, you know, what happened happened. It was twenty one to two run, I think, to start the third quarter. So it was just a really impressive turnaround. Yeah, they had that 14 hour run right at the start of the second half, which is huge. And I saw Tobias Harris interviewed after the game, and he said the uh, most important part of that run in that 51-point third quarter was the defense more so than the offense, which is the perimeter defense has been a huge part of this series and will be throughout it. So them getting a – I don't know, they still scored 123 points, but the, they defended the pick and roll, I think, better in this game than in game one. I have to agree. What I saw from this is that we finally saw Tobias sort of a sense break his recent slump because he's been slumping since probably like mid March. It's been it got ugly to a point, but he, tonight he shot uh, five of twelve from the field, two of four from the three point line, nineteen points at the end of the game. Solid overall outing. I gotta say it didn't look, especially in the second half, offense was not uh, offense. The, out of the starting five, it wasn't like it was forced down each other's throats. It was all in the natural flow of the game. And it goes back to that defensive tenacity that they played in the second half. 51, uh, 51 points is an NBA playoff record, I believe, or ties an NBA playoff record. And this uh, total 145 point breaks a Sixers franchise record that was previous held, previously held by the Philadelphia Warriors, I believe, that had a, a 
that have Chamberlain, Chamberlain on it. So uh, that, yeah. that's a big deal, though. Mm-hmm. I think uh, my biggest takeaway is the fact that we finally saw the Ben Simmons that we needed to see in this game. Because Butler's not going to be able to carry the game every time. Embiid's not going to, right now, he's not, he can still get, you know, 20 and 10, but it's not going to be, it, it's, he's not going to be able to take over a game like he has been throughout the season. So this was a game that Simmons needed to step up in, and he did. And that's what exactly, and uh, by the way, interesting stat here. All the stars shot between shot no less than 10 field goal attempts, no more than 12. But Boban Marjanovic led the team in field goal attempts. <laughs> it's Boban. crazy. Boban. He got 16 points on 8 of 14 shooting, 8 rebounds in only 18 minutes. That's phenomenal for Boban. And we're not going to expect this every single night from Boban. Maybe we can get this type of production for from him for the whole entire first round, but I don't think... It's something that we can expect beyond the first round on a regular basis because more talented teams will expose him. But for now, it's a nice, uh, pleasant surprise. Yeah, I definitely agree with Bowman against the Raptors or Celtics and Bucks in the finals. They're, the way those teams are put together, there's no way Bowman will be able to stand on the floor. But just good for him to have a 16-point outing tonight and hitting all those, what, 15-foot jump shots has got the crowd excited. And I think he got a little bit of motivation from Matumbo. You saw the camera go into Matumbo every time he's making a shot, and he was super thrilled. But also, to go along with bench scoring, Mike Scott at 15 tonight, 5 of 7 from the field, 3 of 5 from 3, which is huge. Because in game one, he went 1 of 8 from 3, 1 of 8 from the field. And so just bench points in general has been the Sixers' problem this year. And have them have two guys to combine for over 30 points, between just between two of them is huge for the game tonight. Yeah, I definitely think Brett's rotational changes were big. He cut TJ and Jonathan Simmons, who were both pretty big negatives in the first game. James Ennis being back is a big help. He's as good as Zaire can be on defense. I still think Ennis is pretty clearly the best option on the wing at this point, just for his own effort, his experience, his shooting. Having him back was nice. He had a few really impressive offensive boards and putbacks in the third quarter, so he was a nice spark. Like you said, Mike Scott was hitting shots. Boban was really good. I do think, you know, against teams who have bigs who can stretch the floor in future rounds, potentially, obviously Boban's going to get played off the floor more. But against the Nets, I think this is one of the better matchups possible for him. So I expect Brown to continue to uh, use him like he did tonight. One thing I also saw tonight was Joel got Jared Allen and Ed Davis in foul trouble for the second game in a row, and that was big with just – because they didn't have Jared Dudley either. In game one, Jared Dudley played that backup center role when Davis and Allen were both in foul trouble. And so tonight, with Dudley out, having that backup center and both those guys being in foul trouble really opened up the game for the team. Just with MB didn't have a huge impact on offense, but just him getting those guys in foul trouble in and of itself was big. You know, it's funny that you say that he doesn't didn't have a big impact on offense, but he was still the team's leading scorer with 23 points on 8-12 to 12 shooting. It's just like he was quiet about it. He wasn't like his normal like take 20 shots type thing. But I I go back to your point. Yeah, he wasn't as impactful as he usually was. Yeah, I think it was more a really nice, efficient kind of in the flow of the offense game for Embiid. He was obviously limited a bit with his knee and with the minute restrictions. But I do think his approach tonight was significantly better than it was in the first game. And I think part of that might be just how his knee is feeling, but he didn't take any threes, and he was really persistent about attacking the room, getting into the lane, 
kind of forcing contact and trying to draw fouls. So I thought that was a really big positive for him. And the same can be for Ben, just attacking the lane, getting into the paint, kind of forcing the issue a bit more than he did in game one. Both those guys had much better games, I thought, offensively. And Ben was obviously great on defense tonight, too. So really big improvements from the two cornerstone guys tonight. Yeah, definitely. Those two guys have a big games. And then also, J.J. Redick didn't have – he hasn't had – he hasn't been J.J. Redick for consistently for a long time. And especially in game one, he only shot – I think he had four three-point attempts in the first game, only shot seven times. And the Nets did a really good job of hedging on those screens and fighting over screens over top just to limit J.J. getting the ball. And tonight, I thought he did – and Bede himself just – with the DHO action and even with Ben Simmons, Reddick got a lot of his open shots and knocked them down at a high rate, 7 to 12 from the field, which is also very important for the team. And I think just from an overall perspective, Embiid wasn't, like we said earlier, and Lucas talked about uh, first, Embiid wasn't the focal point of the offense. It was distributed very evenly throughout all the guys. Ben had his had a lot of his points in the first half, and then Tobias, JJ, and Jimmy all had their, their points throughout the game where they had the ball in their hands a lot. So I thought it was distributed evenly throughout the game credit to brett brown on that yeah i definitely oh, think this one. was a much better game for brett than game one i think yeah game plan wise brett did a much better job he made the bet the thing that i like the most is that in, at the beginning of the game and the beginning of the third quarter ben simmons smothered d'angelo russell and i believe russell for the game he only shot six of 16 and three of seven from the three-point line with uh four turnovers with only two assists. Ben basically essentially shut down D'Lo with, I don't even think Ben had more than three fouls, did he? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, no only three fouls. three fouls. Yeah, so yeah. I liked that. That was probably the biggest adjustment, and uh, it didn't work so well in the first half, but in the second half, overplaying the three-point line, I, if I was Brett Brown with guarding D'Angelo Russell, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Karis LeVert, I would run him off the three-point line, make him two-point shooters, kind of like how you would defend the Golden State Warriors, make them into two-point shooters. Because if you can make the Nets into a two-point shooting team, they're not going to beat you. And that's that's what I think, for the most part, the uh, Sixers did very well in this game. Now, they still shot 41%, but most of that was in the first half. I think they were, what, 10 of 23 in the first half? The Nets were from three. And we were talking about just limiting D'Lo and those guards on the Nets. What the Sixers did a lot tonight was forcing D'Lo to the right, and Ben even allowed D'Lo to make a wide-open three just to show him that we're not letting you go left. And that was forcing D'Lo to dribble right, which he's uncomfortable with, and forcing him to make a lot of mid-range shots. And if I'm Brett Brown and the Sixers, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i let the Nets beat us from shooting mid-range threes, deep mid-rangers. So if they can beat you on mid-range shots, then so be it. But I'm not going to let them beat you from downtown. Because in game one, that was the Nets just shot an unreal rate from three. Yeah, it's almost like a more effective version of what Utah tried on James Harden the other night. <laughs> like sitting behind him on his hip and just letting him drive? Yeah, Taking, yeah. trying to take away his left. Obviously, Harden's a lot better than D'Lo. Similar concept. Oh, obviously. <laughs> well, I'm fine with oh, D'Lo uh, having uh, 16 field goal attempts on 16 points, so give me that uh, every night. Oh, little fun fact, fun stat. Did you know Greg Monroe made his second three-pointer of his career tonight? When he made that at the end, I was like, that's the, that's the wow, Griffin really getting playing time. Crazy, he's a max he's a max player like six, seven years ago. You know, the thing is, if he can actually make that three-point shot a part 
part of his game. He can pass the ball. He can get his hands in the lane. He's not a shot blocker, but he can rebound. Could find a rotation spot again if he can add that three-point shot. But that's for another time, I suppose. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> oh, no, definitely. You definitely have a solid point there. One thing is Jimmy Butler's game, he was in the second quarter of uh, the game one, Brett Brown just was like, all right, Jimmy, you're just going to run the pick and roll and take the game over. And tonight his role was completely changed. And I thought that's good and bad. I guess if the game was closer tonight, Jimmy would have gone to his fourth quarter takeover mode. But especially for the rest of the game, he's, he's a playmaker alongside Ben Simmons and had a lot quieter role in the offense. He was more passive tonight, too, because he didn't have to he didn't have to take as many shots. Yeah, it's definitely nice well, having Jimmy as kind of a fail-safe if the offense sputters just his with his creation ability. But, you know, the disparity between 36 and 7 points can be a little concerning in some ways just because you would want his role to be a bit more defined and consistent. But I think he still made well, his impact on defense in other ways tonight. Well, okay, Here, here's a couple things that I've learned about Jimmy Butler this season. One, he... he he doesn't care what he scores as long as the team wins. He doesn't care about that. He shot three of ten on the field. Field not great, but you know he has those nights now, and he's getting older. He's played through Thibodeau's system, so of course he's not going to have fresh legs at the age of 29. Uh, but there is something interesting here. He had seven assists on zero turnovers. That I, I you know, I'm going to do some more research because I'm curious to see how well the Sixers do when he averages more than six assists a game. But that's that's for another time. But my point is this: is that you know you have Jimmy Butler running the secondary point because um, T.J. McConnell, as Chris said earlier, he's out of the rotation now, which I think is a smart move. But having Jimmy run the backup point and even Tobias Harris, you know, take care of some ball handling responsibilities. I think that's good in Jimmy Butler. Cause he even did that a little bit in Chicago, if I remember correctly. And like I said, Jimmy Butler doesn't care if he, you know, scores seven points or 37 points as long as the team wins. And I think that's the case that will happen tonight. And that's definitely a positive thing coming into this summer. It's not related, but going into free agency this summer, if he's all about winning like he says he is, and it's prevalent if he's happy after a game like tonight with 7-4-7, seven, and seven, then I think there's a good chance he resigns. Totally agree on that. Do you guys do you have any more thoughts on this game, or do you move on to game one? I think we can move on to game one. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're good on that. All right, so game one, just Embiid was obviously not himself. Jimmy Butler took the entire game over, 36 points. Nine rebounds. Somebody asked him about his 36 points, and he says, I don't care about the points. I had no assist, which is testament to Jimmy Butler. says he likes to get his teammates involved. But overall, the game, besides Jimmy Butler's 36 points, it was a terrible game to watch. After the Sixers had a – I'd say after the first quarter, or at least halfway through the first quarter, is looking good with Embiid starting the game off, getting a lot of his dominance in the post, getting Jared Allen in foul trouble early. And then after that, it just was downhill the rest of the game. I definitely think it was kind of – almost an opposite of game two where everyone except Butler was struggling and had a really quiet night. You know, Ben obviously was less aggressive, didn't attack the paint, was kind of shying away from free throws, from contact, which was reminiscent of last season against Boston, which obviously brought up some concerns that he answered tonight. Joe obviously was bothered by his knee, so it was just a really tough night. Jimmy kept the Sixers in it for parts of that third quarter. He kind of helped them hang around but Brooklyn just was bombing away from three the Sixers defense was a mess and it, it really just wasn't a 
fun night at all. I have to agree. It was just it. I mean, I can't really say much more what you guys already said. I guess the most concerning thing to me was, of course, Harris's slump continued into the first game of the playoffs there. It's just, I don't want to say that he's performing worse with Embiid in the lineup, but when he when he first came to the Sixers and Embiid was out for those eight games, he was playing phenomenal. Embiid came back and Harris kind of didn't know what his role was, and I, I guess that kind of affected his shot. And his just overall, you know, scoring, it just, it wasn't pretty for the next, you know, for the rest of March and into April. Even when Embiid was gone, it was just like, for the most part, Harris still struggled. And I guess that's just part of chemistry issue, but it's a chemistry issue that needs to, the hope is to be addressed. But I guess with Embiid's knee, it's kind of hard to get Embiid in practice with Harris. And Brett Brown just needs to figure out the best way to utilize Harris. And when he was with the Clippers, pick and rolls was it, but we don't do pick and rolls here. We do dribble handoffs. So the majority of times. So that's going to, I guess that's been an adjustment that Harris has struggled with. And is I think it's going to continue being a struggle for the playoffs. And it was clearly a struggle in game one. And being such a high usage player, having him not there, the team and the offense is completely different and then when he plays it's everyone gets a whole lot less touches and one thing I saw from game one just this is a this I think this is a a big props to Brooklyn's defense perimeter defense but Harris and Reddick combined for 14 shots total and only six three-point attempts between both of them and Harris by himself seven points and only shot twice from three and you compare that to tonight's game, Harris shot 12 times, four times from three. And the Nets did a really good job of hedging out on – they basically – Tobias was just sitting there in the corner or just moving around the screen, like moving around the offense like he's a spot-up shooter. And the Nets just kept a guy on him at all times and thinking of Reddick, fighting over those screens, keeping a guy on him at all times. And then tonight was a completely different thing. But game one was definitely – perimeter defense from the Nets was one of the big highlights. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Brett's ability to get Tobias and JJ some more open looks tonight was a big part of the Sixers' success, especially early when JJ kind of gave them a lift in the first quarter. I mean, I I just don't think in four games this series, the Sixers will go 3 of 25 from 3, and the Nets will have 56 bench points. I just don't think that's going to be a consistent thing throughout this series. I don't think they can beat them. I don't think the Nets can put, a get, put together that many games like that four times in a seven-game series. Yeah, I agree 100%. I agree, too. I just noticed something on the stat book here, and I, I guess I didn't really think about it when I was watching the second half of the game, but I don't think Ed Davis played a minute in the second half. He only played six minutes before he got the three fouls, and they didn't even go back to him, which... I mean, not worried about foul trouble. I mean, in the second half, and I guess uh, that allowed him be more, you know, ability to go inside. But I guess in the second, in the first game, Ed Davis just basically was the looked like the best center on the court half the time. To be honest, with him being, you know, struggling for most of that game. So maybe it was his ankle. I remember he left the game in the third quarter of game one with that ankle sprain. You might've re-hurt that or they just kept him out because he kept fouling. I'm not really sure. And I do think Jared Allen was mm. a good bit better in game two than he was in game one. 
think that was part of it because Allen was just so got into foul trouble so quickly in game one and couldn't really do much against them beat. He was a lot more under control tonight, used his length to affect some shots and played a bigger role in the Nets offense. The biggest thing I saw was Karis Levert and Dinwiddie's ability, just the difficulty of their shots was really low. They were getting very high quality looks from the from deep and just from mid range throughout the whole game, getting to the basket and same thing with D'Angelo Russell. I mean, he only, he went 10-25 from the field, but that pick and roll that they were using and D'Lo's getting to his left the whole time, it was just – when one of those perimeter guys got the ball in their hands, it was the con- this consistent narrative for the whole year for the Sixers with perimeter guards being able to score at will, and it continued in game one. Luckily, it didn't happen tonight, but – Yeah, Brooklyn does have one of the more entertaining backcourts in that sense, and that they have three guys who can really – Create off the dribble at a high level, hit difficult shots. Levert's probably one of my favorite guys to watch just because of how quick twitch, you know, his athleticism is. He's really shifty with the ball, has a lot of cool dribble moves. So, yeah, they aren't the best matchup on paper, but I do think the Sixers made some really important adjustments tonight. Obviously, Ben and Jimmy were important on defense, having Ennis back helped. So I do think the Sixers kind of got that under control in game two. And there wasn't any booing tonight compared to game one, which is also positive. And the best part is everybody got Wendy's uh, Frosties. Yeah, everybody got Frosties because yeah. somebody missed two free throws in a row. I forget who that was. Travion Graham almost missed two of them all uh, in the second half, so they could have gotten the the second bonus Frosties. Oh, yeah, also game two, Jonathan Simmons playing oh. over Zaire Smith. That was just in rotation. I, just, I know Zaire didn't play tonight, but... Brett Brown having Simmons out there over Zaire, I think that was a big question because Jonathan Simmons used to be a positive on defense, and that does help when – I mean, Simmons has always been a negative on offense, but now I don't even think he's a positive on defense anymore, so having him on the court is kind of useless. And Zaire Smith's a young athletic guy that can defend the perimeter and uh, slash on offense and run down in transition. So I, just, I, didn't agree, I didn't agree with Brown doing that, but tonight it just it didn't really matter. Yeah, I do agree. Well, I think... Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I think Brown's not relying on youth like he used to. And uh, I know for a fact that James Ennis took Zaire Smith's active roster spot. And it's the playoffs, so I don't like the idea, but I understand the idea of Brown choosing a veteran over a young rookie in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I understand kind of going to Simmons at the beginning in the first game, but it was pretty clear right away that Simmons was both a really bad defender and a pretty big negative on offense. So at that point, I think Zaire should at least be on the active roster over Simmons. I still am pretty firm in my belief that Ennis is the best of those three, but Zaire should definitely have a chance to at least crack some of those rotational minutes in certain spots, especially with TJ on the bench permanently. But, yeah, I think Simmons should be kind of stacked at the bottom at this point. What do you guys think about Embiid's the knee, arthritis, short-term, long-term? Are you guys concerned about Embiid's knee injury? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned in a sense. I don't know if we can, you know, project arthritis or anything on it without tests being run. But he missed 14 of the last 24 games, I believe, in the regular season. He's obviously been doubtful or questionable the first two games of the postseason, it was obviously bothering him a good bit in game one. And, you know, anytime your franchise center who's 7'2", 
you know, 280 pounds ish and has missed significant time in the past with injuries is dealing with a knee issue, it's going to cause some concern. So, you know, hopefully this summer they run some tests, they have procedures to kind of clean it up to help dull the pain. Um, but yeah, it's a definite concern, both short and long term. Well, uh, some I actually had my ACL uh, reconstruction back when I was in college. I tore it in high school. So as I could tell that obviously there's something going on there. Now, the broadcaster said it was tendonitis, um, but the fact that he had very little lift compared to what he can do when he's healthy, that concerns me. Um, if this wasn't a make-it-or-break-it-free agent year with Butler and Harris, I probably, as an or as like the front office, I probably wouldn't have played Embiid. I probably wouldn't have played him down the last stretch of the regular season at all, to be honest with you, and see how he is during the post playoffs. But uh, I understand that they're trying to win a championship or at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals to convince Butler and Harris to stay. But if you get them to stay and B can't play next year, you know, God forbid. But if you can't, then what's the point? I think Embiid should not be doing any type of activity at all until – the preseason, not even training camp. If I was, obviously they have to figure out what exactly is going on, but I'd rather play it safe than sorry. And honestly, I would try to load manage him next season, get a more, you know, a better defensive backup center. You don't need a scoring center because you have scoring uh, options other places, but get a quality defensive backup center and, you know, that can give and beat 18 minutes of rest a game at least you know, and just, you know, go from there. But I understand why they're playing him now because it's such an important postseason. It's just weird how Embiid is, like you said, he missed 14 of the last 24 games, and he's having problems with his knee now. And at the beginning of the year, he wasn't sitting out back-to-backs, and he's playing 40 minutes a night. I read an article about that at the beginning of the season. And now he's having all these knee problems. You just question why he had such a high – load at the beginning of the year and he was playing so many minutes i know he might have he said he was fine but i thought there still should have been precaution just with the history of Embiid and his injuries just to kind of like how Kawhi leonard missed like 20 25 games this year i think the same thing should be done with Embiid until i think throughout the rest of his career yeah i definitely think mm-hmm. it was mismanaged a bit early in the season and i also think it took a while for Embiid to come to terms you know with the fact that his knee is hurting and it's probably smarter for him long term to take rest days and to uh, be a little bit more proactive in that sense so I think both from an organizational standpoint and Embiid standpoint it took both sides kind of coming together and realizing that it's more important to be proactive and to address these issues up front instead of waiting and putting it off and letting him play you know back to backs and through that kind of stuff so I think that was an important development but I definitely think long-term there needs to be more consistent load management throughout the entire 82 games. Yeah, I think... Or something like that. Yeah, I think with the backup center situation, with this round, like we were talking about earlier, Bowen's definitely the answer. And I don't think Jonah Bolden, just as a rookie big man, has proved himself to stay on the floor, especially in a playoff series. And I think next round... Bowen is safe this round, but next round, I think they should go to Simmons and Mike Scott with a small ball five situation and not even have Bobin and Jonah Bolden on the floor at the same time, just because when, when Bobin's out there, teams just go after him immediately on the pick and roll and bring him out and just switch and 
just he's he can't stay on the floor like that Boston game three weeks ago when Bowman was out there for I want to say three minutes and they ran three straight pick and pops with Al Horford and pick and rolls and they scored three times in a row and then Brett Brown took out Bobin and he wasn't in the rest of the game. So I think something similar to that will occur in later rounds. Assuming yeah. the Sixers get there. Yeah, assuming the Sixers get past Brooklyn, I do think Bobin's pretty much a non-factor in future series. And I would agree, I think Mike Scott and Ben Simmons should probably get those center minutes just based on Bolden's inexperience. I know he can get into foul trouble at times and his shot isn't the most consistent at this point. But in a more long-term sense, I do think Bolden is a pretty solid option just because he's a pretty versatile defender already. He can shoot. I'm assuming his shot will get better over time. I do think the fouling will get better as well just as he matures and gets more experience. So I think long-term, I'm pretty confident in Bolden as a reliable backup. But for this postseason, I would lean more on Ben and Mike Scott in future rounds. Well, I'm thinking in the next round, assuming that the Sixers get past there, we're going to be facing the Toronto Raptors most likely. If that's the case, I think that it's possible that Boban might be able to match up against Marcus All okay, because Marcus All's not fast. Yes, he can hit the three, but he's not he's not gonna blow by Boban. He he's lost his most of his athleticism now. Now obviously Serge Ibaka is a different story. And and obviously I think Ben Simmons would probably be the best matchup against Serge in the second round, assuming both teams get there. But I, I you know, I noticed something that uh, Brett Brown's been doing differently with Bolden that he did in the beginning of the season, and then he kind of went away from. He's been playing him at the power forward position in recent games. And I like that because he's been able to stay out of foul trouble for the most part. And granted, he's not as involved offensively, but he's, I, you know, he's still, he's quicker than any of our other uh, natural centers uh, defending the perimeter. I think for now, you know, you know, you see most young athletic big men, they start out as power forwards and then they slowly transition to the center. I think what happened this season with uh, Bolden, especially in the second half, is that, you know, he was getting inconsistent playing time because of Boban and and uh, Joel being out for stretches and playing him at the center spot. You know, I don't think. As of now, that's his natural position. And I think, as Chris said, next season, I think he'd be much better suited for it. Um, I'll tell you what, if the team has to go without Embiid for a game as in the starting, I I think I I don't want to take Mike Scott off the bench. And I think Boban would last against an, a, you know, a second-round team. But I think I would... I hate to say this, but I almost would like to see what Greg Monroe could do because, you know, adding that three-point shot. And joking aside, he's slightly quicker than Boban, better rebounder, nearly as good as an offensive player. Not as good as a defender at the rim, but as good as good in space, maybe slightly better. I don't know. I guess it depends on matchups, but I think unless Embiid misses time, I think the duo of Bowl, you know, playing Ben or Mike at the five, you know, occasionally sprinkling in Boban and Bolden moving forward would work, at least to get us to the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't know about getting past the Eastern Conference Finals. You could even have Bolden in at 
technically you'd have Bolden in and then just have him not guard the center, like you said, because Bolden has a history of getting into foul trouble. You could line up with Scott, Ben, and Bolden in there and have Bolden guard the power forward and have Ben guard that center. So he says that a foul, foul trouble and still can play that traditional five on offense. That could very well work. I like the idea of that, to be honest. Yeah, I definitely think Bolden in future rounds when used more intelligently is probably still going to be more useful than Boban just based on matchups. But I do think the Mike Scott-Ben Simmons duo is probably going to be the best option. And one thing, just going off of injuries, James Ennis being back just in tonight's game, that's him getting playing time over John Simmons is just a, a very much an upgrade. And he played well tonight. He, I mean, he only had, he had six points tonight, but just him, his presence on defense is a huge upgrade from that of John Simmons or Firkin Korkmaz or even Zaire Smith, just with his experience in the league. Him being able to guard two through four is just big. And him being back tonight, only 12 minutes, but I think him coming back from that quad injury is something to monitor. But him being able to go in there and be a reliable defender and spot up three-point shooters big for Philly. I definitely think he's a pretty considerable upgrade, obviously, as we've said throughout the podcast, over the guys that were playing ahead of him. And, you know, the Sixers bench is about as thin as it's going to get when it comes to postseason teams. So having at least two or three guys who can consistently provide production, like Ennis and Scott, those guys are really going to have to step up and play well if the Sixers want to compete moving forward. Interesting stat about Ennis. He had the highest plus-minus of any bench player for the Sixers with a plus-14. Yeah, he I was think in the second closest was Mike third, Stott right? plus six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he I think he was really stretch. good tonight. Yeah, so Monty Williams, the the Sixers just granted the Lakers permission for them to interview Monty Williams for their head coaching job. Do you think there's a chance he goes there, or do you think that Lakers are more likely to hire Tyron Lue or Juwan Howard from Miami? I think there's a definite chance, but you know, we obviously don't know the Lakers' intentions or what they're looking for, but in, if LeBron is at all a part of that decision. Obviously, he has a stronger connection to Ty Lue and John Howard just from the Miami days. So I think those two might be stronger candidates in that sense. But Monty obviously has more experience with New Orleans and with OKC for that one year as the associate head coach. So I could see it going any way. I'm sure we'll find out more over the next few days. Well, for me, I, I've been I've been following this closely, and you know I've I've broke this down. Williams's uh, approach. Well, think about it. The first year uh, that he was in New Orleans, it was last year Chris Paul, and before I I think it was the last year before he requested to be traded, and a winning season, and three years of rebuilding. Then they got uh, Anthony Davis and Anthony, and then his last season that he got 45 wins, I believe it was, with Anthony Davis before being, I think, wrongly, you know, fired. I think, well, to say that Monty Williams doesn't have a relationship at all with LeBron, I don't think would be fair because he was an assistant head coach with the Olympic team back when they were in Rio. And they won in Rio with uh, LeBron James headlining that team. So he, I, I, you know, there's obviously a LeBron connection there that shouldn't be overlooked. Now, granted, LeBron does have, you know, higher, you know, higher connection, you know, stronger connections with both Lou and Howard. I don't think, I don't think the Lakers want to go for an unproven assistant. I, they're they're trying to win. I don't think Howard's going to get it just because I, he's not proven as a head coach yet. Though I think he should get his chance in due time. I guess it depends. When Lou was running the Cavs, 
And, you know, you've heard players like Jamison Crowder say that the Cavs didn't really have an offensive system. They just kind of played by, you know, played by the tips of their toes, whatever LeBron wanted to do, basically. And that's not going to work with a, you know, aged LeBron at this point. And Lou got fired six games into his tenure without LeBron in Cleveland. So... I'm not confident if Lou can coach a team that doesn't have a prime LeBron or slightly past prime LeBron. And Monty Williams proves that he can build a playoff contender. I don't know if he could win a championship, but Lou does. I think the fact that they've gotten permission to talk to Lou and are doing so during the playoffs indicate, not Lou, sorry, Williams, that they've, gotten permission and they're planning on talking to him between game two and three indicates that they have at least a very strong interest. And I believe Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN even said that he was the front runner right now for the position. So we'll see. Hopefully he doesn't leave the bench until after the postseason, but I think there's a good chance that he gets it. I think out of the guys available right now, Monty Williams definitely has the most credentials and the most experience to fill in the head coaching job for the Lakers and Lou was kind of, a lot of people looked at Lou as just LeBron's puppet in a way. And then John Howard, the Lakers already went through a situation with an unproven head coach with Luke Walton. So I don't think they'll go that route again with John Howard. So I think as of right now, if I was a betting man, I would choose Monty Williams to fill that spot. I definitely think experience is going to play a role just with where the Lakers are at trying to compete with LeBron. So Monty and Lou are probably the top two candidates in that sense. I kind of like the idea of Howard maybe going to a team like Cleveland because I think we've seen a lot of success with rebuilding teams and younger, more fresh-minded coaches, you know, with Lloyd Pearson, Atlanta, stuff like that. So, yeah, I think Williams and Lou are probably the top two guys to watch for LA. And another thing to remember with Williams and Lou is that Williams has proven that he can develop a superstar, that he did it with Anthony Davis. Lou hasn't proven that. He was given superstars and, you know, did what he did. He got a championship, and there's no denying that. But he hasn't proven that he can develop talent. And Lakers still have three young, talented players at the moment, and Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and Kyle Kuzma. So from a developmental standpoint, Williams would have the edge over Lou there. Monty's he's had a history, and I remember – Russell Westbrook said when he was just that one year with OKC, he was one of the favorite coaches that Russell has ever had. And Russell isn't the most complimentary guy in the world. So that coming from him is shows that Monty's very high, highly coveted and has a lot of respect. So anything else on this? Are we going to you guys ready to move I, on? I think, I, think good. I think if they hire them, they'll announce the hirement, the, the fact that he's hired during the playoffs. But my hope is that he would stay on the bench until after the playoffs because we've already had – Karis, well, we've already had a couple changes in the coaching staff. Like we Lane. had obviously Lane left. We had, um, and we just uh, promoted her from the scouting department, and her name makes uh, Lindsay Harding. Lindsay Harding yeah. just became a, a player development coach. Congratulations on her for being the first female uh, coach in Sixers history. That's a great accomplishment and well deserved. I think Bill O'Brien was even there for temporary, I believe. I don't. Is Bill O'Brien still on the coaching staff, or was he just there until Lindsey came on? I'm pretty sure he's Lang's replacement, like, full-time. Uh, okay. Yeah, he is. He is the full replacement. Uh, okay. Yeah, so 
you guys, your prediction for the rest of the series, do you guys think it'll be Sixers and Six? I think, I think I'm going to roll with Sixers and Six. Yeah, yeah me too. I think that Brooklyn's going to get one more at home, but we finish it out in Six. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think I love seeing Toxic Sixers Twitter Saturday because I knew that on Monday they were going to bounce back. And just seeing everyone – you saw I saw this thing on first take. Should Brett Brown be fired if the Sixers lose in round one? All this just complete overreaction after one game. Just I think I think it's really funny because it's it's a seven game series for a reason. This could have mm-hmm. that game on Saturday could have happened in game three and the reaction would not have been as overblown as it was just because of the placement of the game. And that it happened to be game one, I think it's nice to get it out of the way. But just the timing of it made the reaction just blow up. But I, I just think the Sixers kinda took it as a, a test run, trial and error, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. And tonight they obviously had everything figured out. Yeah, I do think game one was a bit of a wake-up call. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, well, you finished what you were going to say. I was going to say, can we talk about if the Sixers do miraculously fail to win this series? But, Chris, you go ahead and finish your point, and then I'll get into my point, what I would like to discuss anyway. Yeah, I think game one was just more of just kind of concerned as a wake-up call for the Sixers, I think game two, we kind of saw them put pieces together like we've been talking about. Brett Brown came out with a much stronger game plan. And I do think Brooklyn is a, a still a tricky matchup. They still have guards who can kind of hurt the Sixers in various ways. So I do think the Nets have a pretty solid chance of winning another game or two. But I think Sixers and Six is a pretty safe bet. Philly is still the superior team on paper with superior talent. And I do think, they, assuming Embiid's healthy and can play the rest of the series, that they'll pull it out. Yeah, no, I agree. I think they will pull it out. And I think Saturday was an overreaction. But, you know, I, 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 I love first take. I love watching it. I love Stephen A. Smith. But I think he made a valid point. And, you know, God forbid the Sixers do somehow fail to win this series and they lose in the first round. I think at that point, you, you, I think you have to make a change at the helm. I, I don't think you really have a choice at that point. You know, this team is the expectation to is at least make the Eastern Conference Finals, according to Elton Brand. So I think in that regard, if you don't even make it to the second round, I think you got to make a change there. And I don't know who you would replace Brown with, but I think, you know, I don't think it, I don't think we will lose this series. I like I said, I think I have, as I said earlier, the Sixers are going to win this in six, but I think. Worst to happen, Sixers do lose this series. Brown should be fired. I think there's an argument for both ways, and I've tended to side with Brown throughout this year, just with the fact that he's had three different teams this year, the the team with Rocco and Dario, and then the post-Jimmy Butler trade, and then the post-trade deadline team with Tobias and Boban, Mike Scott, all those guys. And I think with this starting lineup only having 10 games together, you could say that, you can't really put that all on a coach. It's a lot of responsibility to be put on his shoulders. And a lot of people say, like I heard Zach Lowe talking about this on his podcast a few weeks ago. He said that he only thinks that there's about a handful of coaches that actually impact teams winnings in like a substantial way. And I think Brett was kind of not dealt a bad hand. He's dealt a good hand, which is the amount of talent he had, but he's put in a difficult situation with giving this talent, this much talent and, just with Tobias getting a star of his caliber that late in the season, putting that all together. But then again, to your point, Lucas, losing in the first round is not a good look for this team that 
has a talent, has the highest level of talent in the Eastern Conference, and for them to lose in the first round is far below expectations. So you, you'd have to look at what replacement do you have with Brett, and would you promote Monty Williams? Maybe, but he might get that L.A. job, so that wouldn't be an option. But if there's a good replacement out there that you think you could lure in to replace Brown, then maybe go for it. But I, I don't think the Sixers will lose, but if they do – it's definitely something to ponder. I don't think it's a, it's a simple, you definitely need to fire Brett Brown. But then again, at the same time, there's definitely cause for concern. Yeah, I think a lot of it. Uh, I do agree. Circumstances. Yeah, no, I, I did want to amend my, my statement because you're right. The chemistry is the lack of a bit of time to build this chemistry is a big factor. And the other factor is Embiid's health. If Embiid can't play the rest of the series, God forbid, then I think you give Brown a pass if you can't pull it out. But, you know. Uh, as Chris was starting to say, yes, I think it does come down to circumstance. But I'm sorry for interrupting. You can go ahead, Chris. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, you yeah, no, no worries. And yeah, I think like I just said, circumstances will play a big role. How Embiid's health holds up, how different factors play out, and like uh, Jack mentioned with the chemistry, I do think an off season together, if Tobias and Jimmy and JJ did all eventually resign, would really help the Sixers in terms of getting that cohesion, especially on defense and kind of figuring each other out. I think we saw a similar thing with OKC this past summer where they came back this year and before Paul George got hurt. They were significantly better. Westbrook and George were playing off each other a lot more efficiently, a lot more effectively. So I do think a summer together with time to train and work out would really help the Sixers if everything holds up and they do stick together. So I would be hesitant to fire Brown, you know, unless it's a very embarrassing way to go out. Anything else on that or? I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. I just think there's like Chris said with this team, I think giving Brett Brown, what 10 games and they'll say losing six or seven, giving them 17 games with this team, not enough time to, not a big enough sample size for Brett Brown to expose like what he could actually do with this team. So maybe this offseason, let's say they re-sign them, and then they actually get a legit bench because this bench right now is bottom five in the league. So like I was saying earlier, dealt a bad hand in that he has a very highly talented team, but he got it very late, and then he also has one of the worst benches in the league, where at the same time in the playoffs you have shorter rotations, but – in, in the same breath, this team and the amount of talent it has is not easy to put together. Like we saw the Heat, it took them, they started the season, what, 11 and 12 in their first year with a big three, and then they finally went on that 33-game winning streak. So similar with this team right now, they could just be gelling together in this first round. And whether that ends up shorter, they win, I think that's to be decided. But um, I tend to sign with Brett Brown, and my bias shows, but if we did lose in the first round, he got fired, I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you guys make. Yeah, no, I, I, that's those are fair points. And I, yeah, I, I do. I think it does come down to circumstance. But I don't think it would be a surprise, like you said, Jack, if he did get fired in the first round, regardless of the circumstances. I, I think you know you should evaluate him without, you know, I think you should evaluate him before you just, you know, fire him. But yeah, no. Um, I think it does come down to circumstances at the end. All right, guys, appreciate you for listening. Uh, we'll be back maybe Thursday or Saturday, game three, three and four recap. So appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back soon.